Morning. So I'm going to ask you a question, and uh, just remember what first pops into your mind, and then we'll visit that at the end, if I remember. Okay, now, don't take time throughout this to rework your answer. The first thing that pops into your mind, okay? So if I said to you, I want to talk to you about why Jesus came, all right? Whatever popped into your head, keep it. Don't change it or tweak it. Keep it, and we'll talk about that at the end. So on Friday... I got a notification at the phone at work. You know, you hear the wee bing. And, uh, and you can't ignore it. You have to look. And then you look and you regret why you looked. So anyway, the bing goes. And I look at the phone. The breaking news was that Midget James have been cancelled. Okay, I don't know if you got that one. But Midget James have now been cancelled. They're offensive. Okay, and they've been taken out. And it's just another, list, another one on the long list of things that are getting cancelled. Okay, sometimes it's people because of what they've done or what they've done even years and years and years ago that someone has somehow found, and now that person gets cancelled. We don't want to hear from them anymore. We want to see them. We hope they lose their job and everything that they own, okay? It could also be a message that gets cancelled, okay, because of the content of it, or even worse, it could be what is perceived by a certain message, and therefore it gets cancelled or the messenger gets cancelled. So Jesus, here in chapter 4, is going to get cancelled. Is it because of him? Is it because of the message? Or is it because of what's perceived? So let's get into it. Let's read Luke chapter 4. I know sometimes whenever we come and we read scripture, your mind can wander, you can daydream, especially if this person reading it isn't that hot at the old reading. So try... And have in your mind this, if you believe this is actually God's word, read it and listen as if it is actually God speaking to you, okay? Let's read, this is Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. On rolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. And Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do you hear in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum? Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the whole land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. When the people in the synagogue 
heard this, they were furious. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went in his way. So Jesus gets canceled in his hometown. So Luke has been trying to build a picture for us here. Luke has taken it upon himself and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to write a detailed account to try and convince readers, especially those who weren't brought up in a Jewish background, who didn't have Old Testament scripture and know about the one true God. He wrote it to try and convince them that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. He was actually the promised one from years and years ago through all the prophecies. He was the one that was going to rescue and save the world. So he writes a detailed account. He calls in different witnesses, and you've read them already. You've covered Angel Gabriel, covered people like Simeon, who declared this is, this is the salvation of the Lord when he held that baby Jesus. Anna, you've seen the difference in Elizabeth and Mary, and even Zechariah, who was doubtful. He called in these different witnesses. You've seen him get tested by the devil. He's called all these different things to account, and he's writing this in detail to try and convince his readers, whoever they are, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. He is the savior of the world. And then he writes a different account to show us the difference that that will make in the world if that's true, the book of Acts. So if he truly is who claimed to be in, the book, in, in Luke's book here, the difference will be something like the book of Acts. That's what he's doing, and that's what he's tried to do here. And now we see Jesus, and he comes to Jesus here in Nazareth, and he gives, gives Jesus the opportunity in chapter 4 to tell us who he is. So this is Jesus' own perception of who he is, why he came, and his mission. So now he's going to witness for himself. He's not calling different people. This is Jesus himself in his hometown telling us what he's like, who he is, and why he came. Okay, so we need to listen to it, and we need to really think, what is he actually saying? What is happening? And why did they react in the way they did? So he's finished the temptation. He's done what Adam didn't do. Adam failed when tempted. Israel failed in the wilderness, and now Jesus triumphs. He showed that he is the Son of God, and he hasn't come to prove himself to God and, and set up his own system. He hasn't come to establish a political power or, or city or country or anything like that. And it's not about his own desires and his own will. He's shown us those things. He is here for a specific purpose. And now he's going to show us what he's here for. So he returns from that time in the power of the Spirit, and he begins to teach. He goes into synagogues, and he's, he's teaching. There are miracles happening. He's beginning to start to show people, this is why I'm here. This is my purpose. People start to talk about him. People have heard about him. And now everybody's getting excited. And generally, it's acceptance. People are on board with what he's doing. They're amazed by it. They haven't heard anything like this. Mark says that he talked in a way that had real authority. He wasn't like the other teachers. Okay, and you know the story too. You can sit and you can hear all sorts of things and it just sounds like the same old thing. Boring. You know, you've heard it before. It's droll. They don't even look excited by it. So how are you going to get excited by it? And they had that too. And then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, who doesn't look like a regular teacher. He's a carpenter from up, up in Nazareth. 
And he's saying things in a way you've never heard. And he's doing miracles you never dreamed were possible. So the, the message generally is, there's something to this. And Jesus then heads home to Nazareth. Okay, his hometown, where he grew up. Mary and Joseph are there. Brothers are there. He's heading home. And you think this would be good after, after what's happened in Capernaum and thereabouts, heading back home, this would be good. Okay, homecoming, you always see that, you know, teams come back, everyone goes crazy. That's what you would imagine, but that's not what's going to take place. He's going to get cancelled in his hometown. So what you have to do here, and it's quite useful, is to imagine that you're part of this. So put yourself in the synagogue. Imagine that you actually knew Jesus. He lived down the street. Okay, he built the table, your, your dining table. He made that. He fixed your door not so long ago. You know him. You grew up with him. You've chatted with him. You've watched his daily life. It's a small village. You know lots about him and his family. Okay, so you're there. Now you've heard stories about what he was doing maybe 20-odd miles away. You've heard sort of rumors and stories, and you're not sure is it true or is it not. But then again, a small village, there's not a whole load going on. So it's worth heading to the synagogue to see what's happening. And you're going to be there anyway because you're religious. So you head to the synagogue. We're all there. Okay, and there he is. There he is. That's Jesus, yep. And he gets handed a scroll. Okay, nothing too unusual. He's handed the scroll, and he starts to flick through. So you're kind of, this will be interesting. Again, he's different than the other teachers. Remember, he speaks with authority, not like others. So it's going to be good no matter what. It's going to be interesting. He unrolls the scroll, and he's searching through. Okay, it wasn't next in the line of readings. He actually goes through this scroll, and he's looking for something in particular. So you can sense, oh, he's on to something. Something is going to be said here. He's searching through. And he stops, and then he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops, rolls it up, hands it back, and sits down. Now, if you've been going to the synagogue your whole life, just as Jesus was, You'd be aware that what's happening here in Isaiah, you're familiar with this. You know what this is about. This is the part in Isaiah where there's promises about God's kingdom. There's promises about the time where God is going to come and set everything right. He's going to put an end to oppression. And if you're a part of Isaiah's day, that was oppression by foreign powers. And, and he's going to put an end. There's even promises about sickness and even death. Everything that plagues this world, God has promised he's going to come and set up a kingdom where he rules, not sin, not some sort of superpower. He actually rules on this earth. You know it. This is the passage that brings hope. And you're sitting there and you think, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to say, sort of remind us of our hope and remind us to keep on going? You know, persevere, endure this, tolerate the Romans, you know, keep your chin up. Is he going to point us just to keep on believing in the promise? What is Jesus going to say that's different about this? You'll be aware of it. You'll have heard it before. What's he going to do about it? 
And that's when he drops a bombshell. That's when Jesus sits down. Now he's going to say something about what he's read. Everyone's looking at him because you've heard the stories. You know that he's different. What is he going to do? And then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, automatically, that's going to cause some alarm. You're going to wonder, what is he talking about? It's clearly not fulfilled because the Romans are still in power. They're still poor people. They're still prisoners. They're still, it's, clearly, it's clearly not fulfilled. What is he talking about? And Jesus goes on to speak. And initially, they're amazed by how he is speaking. They're taken in because it's easy to listen to. It's convincing. It's got authority. But then the mood changes. When somebody reminds everybody, hold on. Isn't that the carpenter? The whole mood changes. And Jesus perceives that change, that shift, and then he addresses them again. And it's amazing that a whole group can be influenced and change direction so quickly. And that's one of the things with the cancel culture that we mentioned. Everything can be okay. I love Midget James. Never thought twice about why it's called Midget James. And now we're all aware about Midget James. And now you think, I wonder why it is called Midget James. And, and what other sweets are offensive? And so the whole mood changes because somebody or a company said something. Everyone's amazed. And then somebody reminds them, let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's the local car carpenter. It's just Jesus. Who is he to talk like this? Who is he to say that he is the fulfillment of that? That that carpenter, Jesus, he fixed my door. That he is the one that's bringing sight to the blind. He's going to free the oppressed, deliver the captives. It's just Jesus. He's the car. He can't do that. Let, you know, everyone's getting carried away and then somebody brings them back down to earth and says, no, that's the local carpenter. And Jesus sees what's going on. And so he addresses them. And he hits them with a proverb or what we would say, just a, a saying, a local saying. And it was common and he said, physician, heal yourself. It's that sort of thing of, you know, well, hold on here. You know, you may claim to, to, to be a physician or a doctor, but clearly I wouldn't believe it because the state that you're in, it doesn't look like that. Fix yourself and then you can tell me how to fix me. Okay, so just, it's that sort of thing. Don't get ahead of yourself. You're making these wild claims. Heal yourself. Prove it. And Jesus knows that that's what's going on inside their heads. He can see them. And several times in Luke, you see that happening. Jesus knows what they're thinking. And that's a worrying thought too, isn't it? That Jesus knows what you're thinking. He knows what I'm thinking right now. And that's why I asked you the question at the very beginning. He knows what first came into your mind. Okay, not now when you're reworking it, now that you're conscious of it. 
He knows what first popped into your head. And so aware of that, he says, I know what you want. You want me to display some sort of power. Something like you heard I was doing in Capernaum. You want a miracle. You want me to prove it. But Jesus knew that the problem was deeper than that. There was something bigger going on. They could not believe that the person they grew up with or the person they watched grow up, that worked in their house, there's no way that they could imagine and believe that that person was the promised Messiah that they had been waiting on, the nation had been waiting on for hundreds of years. Not a chance. It's just Jesus. So he senses the hardness of their hearts. He senses their own belief and also the pride that they say, we don't need this. First of all, we're not blind, not oppressed, captive. We don't even need this thing that you're talking about. And who are you anyway to talk to us like that? So he sees what's going on and he doesn't pander to them by giving them miracles and displaying and trying to, trying to win them over with that. He actually challenges them. And he challenges them with what really matters, what's going on in their hearts and their minds. And it riles them up. And what he's trying to do is show them what it really looks like to accept God's message. And he uses two examples, one from Elijah and one from Elisha. And in both of these examples, we're going to see that what Jesus was talking about is actually part of these people, the widow and then Naaman. You see, yes, he did come and, and for poor people. There was a lot of socially, economically poor people that were drawn to Jesus. Okay, they actually didn't have anything. Beggars, widows, outcasts, physically they were poor. But we also see that it was far more than that. It wasn't just their lack of resources because Naaman was a wealthy military commander. In the next chapter, you're gonna see him with Levi, a tax collector, and other wealthy people. So it wasn't, it wasn't just about how much power they had, resources they had. See, the poor people he was coming for, it didn't just mean that. And it wasn't just the people who who were actual literal prisoners or captives. He's going to let them see that actually everybody is a captive. And he is literally going to free people from a, a demonic hold. He's going to do that later on when he leaves Nazareth. It's going to actually cast demons out of people. People were held by demons. Physical sickness manifested because of demons. He's going to actually do that. But he's also going to show that everybody is held captive in that way. He is going to bring literal sight to blind people. And he'll do that twice in Luke. But he's also going to show that we're all blind. And he's going to challenge everybody like that. And he's going to show that we're all oppressed. And that was the offensive part of this message. See, these people in Nazareth, they were at the synagogue. They listened to Scripture. They prayed. They were God-believing. They were God-fearing. And for somebody then, the local carpenter, just Jesus, to stand up and say, you're actually poor. 
Before God, you're poor. Before God, you're actually oppressed. You're captive in sin and the power of Satan. You're blind to spiritual things. That was highly offensive. And that's what really triggered them. And that's why they wanted to cancel him. I'm not blind. I'm not oppressed. I'm not captive by Satan. I believe. I go to the synagogue. I listen to scripture. And they were really triggered by this, especially when he brought in the Gentile dimension. When he tried to suggest that actually there's Gentiles who displayed more humility and more openness to receiving God's favor and God's grace than them. I mean, that was just, the high, uh, you couldn't get more offensive than that. And that's why they were furious. And that's why they wanted to grab the man that they grew up with. I mean, his mom and dad were in the village and his brothers were in the village. To be willing to grab somebody whose family still lived there, grab them and drive them out, and wanting to actually kill him in front of his family. I mean, you have to be enraged to another level to be willing to do that. And everybody was in on it. The whole village were willing to take the guy they grew up with and hurl him off a cliff. Because Jesus was confronting them and confronting their heart issues and showing that no amount of miracles would change it because the real problem is their unwillingness to admit that spiritually they are poor, meaning hopeless. Nothing, no resources before God to better their position. There was nothing they could do. They were oppressed and held captive by sin and Satan. They were blinded. And Paul says that later, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They did not want to believe it because look at them. They're in the synagogue. It doesn't look like an oppressed, blind, poor people. And then we think about ourselves. What has this got to do with us? What can we learn from them? Well, we're all sitting and we've got it together. We're well-dressed probably not economically poor, got sight, not oppressed, not blind. How do we accept his message? What can we learn from this that's going to speak to us right now? One important thing was that there's a time limit to our response to him. And there was a time limit to their response. When Jesus rolled up the scroll, when he stopped reading, he stopped reading deliberately. And the very next line that he could have read from Isaiah talked about the day of the vengeance of God. He didn't read it. Remember, he deliberately searched. It wasn't in the scripted reading for that day. He deliberately searched. He chose what he wanted to read to show them why he was there, his true purpose, and he deliberately stopped. Why? Because he was showing them that as they sat there in that synagogue, it was the time 
to accept God's favor and God's grace. This was it. And we are still in that time. This is the time of God's favor and acceptance on earth. He didn't read the next line, which talked about the day of vengeance, which we know is in store. The day when God will put everything right, all of the injustice, and there is so much in the world that will be corrected. And God will punish all sin, all evil. It is coming, and we don't know when. So there's a time limit to our response to him and to what he said here. The next thing is, I think we need to change how we view ourselves. Have you ever, before God, viewed yourself as poor, meaning hopeless, blind, oppressed? Now, I know I've done things wrong, but I never really say that I've been oppressed or held captive by, by sin or Satan. You know, that's for addicts, not for me. I sin, but I'm not like that. Have you ever actually felt a complete hopelessness before God? And a lot of these words are used to try and make us understand. It's not just literal. It's also trying to make us think and imagine what is actually happening. Over the last couple of weeks, we started watching Narnia with our kids. And uh, last night, we were doing Prince Caspian. And you can see them imagining. Okay, so it's a battle. It's hopeless. You know, they're going to lose. You can see the hopeless look, you know. Where's Lucy? You know, they don't know where Lucy is. Lucy's off to find Aslan. And then, you know, they find Aslan and you can see, you know, uh, one of the daughters like, yes, you, know, you can see the hope. Aslan's coming. There's, there's a hope. It's not hopeless anymore because there's Aslan. He shows up and everything changes. But there was a moment in the battle where everything was hopeless. And you can see the kids getting in on it and they can imagine it. And that's what this is meant to do. We're actually meant to imagine that we're like this. And until we do, we'll not truly appreciate him and the salvation that he has offered. And it doesn't matter whether you don't believe yet or maybe you believed when you were young. And if you're like me and that was you when you were young, there is a sense in which you've never really felt that way because, you know, you weren't off, you know, locked up and in prison and doing all these things. You were just a child. But we still need to feel that utter need and dependence on him. He's not just the savior for that moment in conversion. He is the savior that we need now. He's the savior that we need every day in our lives, in your relationships, in everything that we do, and utter dependence on him. And I think we need to go to the doctor. In chapter five here, as Jesus is going through and he's demonstrating basically what he said there, he's showing, I can do this, casting out demons, healing people, forgiveness of sins. He's doing all of these things that he said that he was here to do. And then at the end of that part, he says that actually, he didn't come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick. Not for the righteous, but for the sinners. And that's what he's trying to do. And that was the problem in Nazareth. They weren't sinners. They didn't need Jesus telling them that they were poor, oppressed, and blind before God. Don't think so. And that's why they pushed him out, because they didn't need him. And we can do exactly the same thing. We can do it in our own lives, and we can do it when we get together. 
You know, who will we pick to do whatever it is? Well, such and such, you know, he's, he's very good in business. He'll be good at it. No, no, that's not how it works. It's not what we're good at. It's not what you're naturally able to do. It's meant to be an utter dependence on him. And I'm at it too. That question earlier, if I just said to you, I'm here to talk about why Jesus came, what would pop into your mind? Okay, what did enter your head? Now, if you're like me, and somebody, I was at, say, our, our home church there, and somebody stood up and said, I just want to talk to you about why Jesus came. In my head, okay, it's confession time. In my head, what happens is, I already know that. Yeah, I know. I know why he came. You know why he came. And automatically, I'm like, eh, I'll listen. But I already know this stuff. And what I'm trying to say is, I don't need it. I know it. Now, maybe I'm just worse than everybody, but I doubt it. I'm sure we all have that thing where you think, I don't need this so much. It'll be good for them. This passage of the gospel, well, I'll be good for people who don't believe. <laughs> no. Luke wrote this to make somebody who had already heard more sure of what they believed. This is for us. This will make a difference in our lives if we get to the point where we're so poor, blind, oppressed, and captive that we say, we need this Jesus. And he's not just Jesus, like the people in Nazareth thought. He's the promised Messiah, the hope of the world, the king setting up his kingdom. He's the one that will enable us to live a life with purpose and meaning. He'll transform us. He'll forgive us. He'll bring us and give us eternal life and joy. He'll enable us to be connected to him where his life flows through us. He'll enable us to serve him with joy. He is everything that we need. But until we admit it, we will continue to do things ourselves. Even this week, again, I don't know why I confess like this. It just comes out. Anyway, so this week, you know what it is. If you have young kids, you run the boat, you go to work, you come home, dinner time, dinner time, dishes, drive them here and there, get them home, bedtime, okay, Bible story, and then you're right, I have to get ready for the present. So quick, quick, Bible story, read it, okay, night, night. And then you go in, then there's another one back up again, okay, off you go. And time is getting shorter and shorter. You know I'm going to get tired, and then I have to go to bed and do this all over again, okay? So time is short, and you're, right, right, now I better actually get ready for the present. And you're like, oh, I don't have much time. And you're thinking, I should probably stop and ask the Lord you know, to, to teach me, to, to show me what he once said. And it popped into my head this week, I don't have time for that. I actually need to start getting something ready. Because I can do this. I've done it before. I don't need him. We're all we all have this in us to resist, to have it together, but we need to go to the doctor. And I don't go to the doctor until I absolutely cannot do it myself. We need to get to the point something needs to change in us, where we come to the point where we're totally reliant on him in everything that we do. 
whether it's here together, whether it's things like this, or leading praise, or teaching Sunday school, or teaching our kids at home, or with our relationship with a spouse, or whatever it happens to be, we need to get to the point where we need Jesus. We need him. Can't keep on doing it. The people in Nazareth weren't open for that. We don't need you telling us what we're like. We don't need that message, so we'll cancel you. Imagine the difference it would make in our lives individually, our families, and in church, if we all got to the point where we put an end to ourselves, acknowledged our need of him, and then lived in gratitude of the one that opened your eyes, freed you from sin and the power of Satan, you actually realize what's happened, and you were living in gratitude and devotion to the one who had set you free. I need more of that. I need more of that gratitude and devotion and reminder of all that has taken place in my life because of Jesus Christ. And I guarantee that you are in the same boat. So let's stop and we'll ask the Lord to speak. Ask him to speak to you. And be open that when he does speak, to do something about it. Be willing to change, or in other words, repent. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And at times it's hard to read. It's, uh, it's painful. It pokes our consciences and exposes things in us that we don't like. And Lord, pray you help us to be open with you and even with each other about sin, about attitudes, about struggles. And Lord, we're so thankful that you sent your son to save us. If you didn't, we'd just be hopeless, trying our best and struggling on and and just trying to to work out what we're meant to be doing here. And and Lord, it'll be a failure. So we just thank you for the hope that you brought through him. We thank you that uh, you give us power to, to be free from sin and Satan and you opened our eyes to see things we can never have understood. We just pray to help us to value what you've done for us and to value the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, show us things that we need to change. Show us the attitudes of self-dependence and reliance and help us to change and just get to the point where we need you more than ever. So Lord, pray to help us to make a difference when we're together in our families and work and we'll just let other people see that you are a great savior and you came to bring hope to a world that's wrecked by sin. And we pray this in your name. Amen.